0: Luke and Praise Team. If you have your Bibles, open them to Matthew chapter 8, Start in verse 5. Matthew chapter 8, and we'll start in verse 5 this morning. Matthew chapter 8, 5 to 13. The first time I met Andrea's family, we were dating. uh, We had not been dating for very long. I was 19 years old. And now you have to know, Andrea is part of a large family. She has nine brothers and sisters. She's one of 10 kids, plus two parents. And so I'm a 19 year old kid going into the home with tons of brothers and sisters all looking at me. I remember it like it was yesterday. I remember the awkward feeling that came over me as we went into the house, and I'm sitting there. I basically took a position in the corner. And just decided to sit on a bar stool, fold my hands, and look at the ground. That was it. I, I said hi to everybody, and I thought, I just, you cannot get me out of here quick enough. There were tons of little eyes just watching. She's the third oldest, so, so lots of little kids all around, just, they're all just staring at me, staring a hole through me. And I'm thinking, I. I need to get out of here quickly and fast. It was just the most awkward feeling in the world being in that setting. And I felt the kind of pressure uh, of just of being there and performing. And I don't, I don't know what. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. I don't know where I'm supposed to put my hands. I don't know who I'm supposed to say hi to or, or talk to. I don't know what I'm supposed to talk about. All of these thoughts are flooding through my head. So I just stayed quiet sat in the corner. We all look back on that day now and laugh at it. Yes, it's funny. But uh, after getting married then i start to come obviously closer to the family and actually even before then leading up to the marriage and even even we dated for almost 3 years so over that course of time there's there's a, a period of time where i'm growing closer to the family I get to know her brothers and sisters get to know her her uh, her parents a little bit better it's not so intimidating the times over there i start to eat with them it's it becomes a little bit freer of a of a time and a little bit more enjoyable and then of course after getting married there is some adjustment a new kind of adjustment period especially when it comes to the holidays You know, leading up to Thanksgiving, I don't think there was any question here as we were talking about Thanksgiving that I'm big on the food, right? I like the food part of Thanksgiving, and I like the time leading up to the food part of Thanksgiving just thinking about the kind of food that I'm going to eat. Even now I'm getting hungry just thinking about the food that we're going to have at Thanksgiving in a few months. Um, (laughs) But but when you have Thanksgiving and you have holiday traditions, eh, there's mom's dressing, right? Right? You know mom's dressing. Everybody's got mom's dressing or got dad's whatever. You got, you got your certain things that you're looking forward to and that you're building up for. Well, after you get married, things change a little bit. This was going to be the first Thanksgiving that I was not at home for Thanksgiving. I didn't have my mom's dressing and I didn't have all of the things that I'm, I'm really used to having. So I go in and we have new traditions. And here, one tradition happens at Christmas around her house. When we 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 were young, we would run down to the tree and we would just, it was a free-for-all. You just start shredding open gifts. It it goes, it lasts about 30 seconds. Christmas did. <laughs> and it was over. Everybody's shredding gifts. Paper just goes everywhere, and we all have our presents. But at her house, it was pass around one gift at a time. Everyone opens it. And with 10 brothers and sisters, you can imagine how, much, how long that takes. several hours into this, we're opening gifts still. And so there's these new traditions and things that I'm having to get used to about being part of a new family, and being grafted into this new family. But now, as time has gone by, we've been married for th- 13 years. Um, I have to do the math. Uh, don't don't hate me, but <laughs> it's about thirteen years and and now as time has gone on and we've and I've gone over to their house for Thanksgiving and Christmas for a number of times now. There's actually a lot of things that they do that I prefer over the things that I, we used to do when I was a kid. And it's part of being part of a new family is that you you start to uh, join in some of the things that you're that they that they do as part of their traditions and. And part of that means that I lose some of the things that I used to do growing up. And to be quite honest, happily lose those things. Well, as we look in our text this morning, we're going to see the faith of a Roman centurion. He comes to Jesus and he's asking for his servant to be healed. But this scene in the gospel is more than just a healing scene. It's more than just the kinds of healing scenes that we've seen before. It certainly is that, and it's not less than that, but it's a lot more than that. Because Jesus uses this centurion as an example. And he, it, the example that he uses is what kind of faith actually saves you. This Roman centurion is going to be an example. And it points to, his life, his testimony here in front of Jesus is going to point to what it means to be included into the family of God. And we're going to see that play out in this scene. With that in mind, let's look at our text this morning, Matthew chapter 8, starting in verse 5. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown out into outer darkness." In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And the centurion, uh, and to the centurion, Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Now, just a reminder of where we are in, in the Gospel of Matthew, just in case you're either new to our congregation or you've forgotten, uh, we started a study of the, of the Gospel of Matthew back in December of 2017. And so we are now a quarter of the way through the Gospel of Matthew. And it took us a little more than a year to get there. So my guess is about three years from now we'll be wrapping this up or getting close to the end. But along the way... What I hope we've seen is that the structure of the Gospel of Matthew is actu- it actually matters. And it informs us of the picture that Matthew is trying to paint for the readers of his Gospel. Now, just dig back with me for just a little bit, all the way back to chapters 1 to 3. You remember that Matthew's Gospel is really divided up. The body of it is divided up into five main sections. We're in the second section now. But but before the the five main sections, there's an introduction, and then at the end, there will be a conclusion. And right in the middle, there's five main sections. And so in that introduction, which is roughly about the first uh, three and a half chapters, you'll recall that Matthew is introducing us to this king. We hear about this, this king that's being brought onto the scene. And we learn right out of the gate that he is of the line of David. We know that for sure, that he is uniquely suited to sit on David's throne, and he will never vacate that throne. But then within the same chapter, we also see that he is God in the flesh. He is called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And we're told right out of the beginning that he's not only of the line of David and that he'll never vacate the throne of David, but that he is also God in the flesh. So there's something different about this baby. He's born of a virgin and, and many other things, but, but we learn right away that he is God with us. But then in the subsequent chapters, we see Matthew building this parallel between Jesus and Moses and Israel that preceded Him. You'll remember in both Moses and Jesus' story, there's a tyrannical king that tries to kill many Jewish infants, murder these Jewish baby boys, but both Jesus and Moses managed to escape under the protection of Pharaoh. Moses into Pharaoh's house, Jesus into Egypt. Matthew even clues us into this parallel because when both of them come out, when Moses and Is- Moses leads Israel out of Egypt, he says of Jesus when he comes out, out of Egypt I called my son. We know that he's quoting Hosea 11.1 and we know that that was in reference to Israel coming out of Egypt being the Son of God. But now here we have the perfect Son of God coming out of Egypt as well. And Matthew says this fulfills prophecy. So both of them come out of Egypt. Both of them immediately go through the waters. Here's Moses and Israel going through the waters of the Red Sea. Here's Jesus going into the, the Jordan River to be baptized. And then both of them go out into the wilderness. Moses and Israel go out there for 40 years in disobedience, partway in disobedience, and and Jesus goes out there in perfect obedience to God, resisting the temptations of the devil. And then both of them are to go into the land of Canaan and conquer it with the news of the kingdom of God. Moses and Israel both fail to do this where Jesus is succeeding right now. There's this parallel story that's going on that we see that Jesus is tracing the steps that Israel and Moses were walking through, but he's doing it perfectly and without sin. Then we look at chapters 4 to 7 where we have this first main section where this king is introducing us to the kingdom of God that he's bringing. He's introducing us to this. He's telling what what citizenship looks like in the kingdom, how citizens behave. And let's not forget, in 4.17, he leads the whole thing off by saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Meaning that the citizens of the kingdom of heaven are characterized by repentance. How could they not? Because in chapter 5.48, he says, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. How can the citizens of the kingdom of heaven not be then characterized by repentance? Now, that's a section we just came out of. And here we're in chapter eight, in which is a new section in the gospel. And Matthew is showing us this kingdom of God and how that it actually has an impact on people's lives. That when it meets the kingdom of this world, it wins out. That it has an impact, a real, it's not an empty vain philosophy. This is real world impact on people's lives. So Jesus has begun going through the villages around Galilee. He's been healing lots of people. And it, and it shows several things about this kingdom. Not only does this kingdom have a real world impact, but the power of this kingdom usurps the power of the world. Well, there's no disease that Jesus is going to meet that he can't cure if he wants to. There's no wind that He can't calm. The kingdom of this world pales by comparison in power to the kingdom that, is, that, it, that He is bringing. But not only that, we're also seeing that Jesus has authority over this kingdom. That He's the point man of this kingdom. That he's the one bringing God to the people and bringing the people to God. When we say he mediates the kingdom, that's what we mean. He's bringing the two sides together. He is bringing this kingdom in such a unique way that he is overcoming all powers of the world. And it shows that he has unique authority over this kingdom. Now last week we saw that Jesus healed a leper. The leper came out of uh, nowhere to the crowd And Jesus reached out his hand, and he touched him, and he healed him. And what was interesting about that scene is that Jesus does not become unclean in the process. Jesus doesn't contract the uncleanliness of the leper. Instead, the leper contracts, if you will, the holiness or the cleanliness of Christ. He gives that to him. And by doing so, he restores him to a right relationship with God and to the people of Israel since he's no longer relegated to the outskirts of the town. Now in our text today, we have a centurion. And he's approaching Jesus and he's asking for healing for his servant. But in this scene, with the centurion... What we actually get insight into is saving faith. What we're actually gonna see is saving faith. Jesus, Matthew, the Holy Spirit, all the ones coming together in writing this gospel are, are, are all recognizing something really significant about the way the centurion responds to Jesus when he's when when the dialogue happens. And it demonstrates what it means to really have saving faith. And so I want you to see two things about this scene today. First, that saving faith is true. Trusting in the authority and power of Jesus Christ. Saving faith is trusting in the authority and power of Jesus Christ. Look at what happens here in starting in verse 5. When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed and at home suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard this, he marveled. So, Here's Jesus and he enters into the town of Capernaum. and this is his home base of operations. We know for sure that there were uh, many of the disciples were located here. Peter's house was here. Capernaum is on the northern shore. Of the Sea of Galilee. So it's up on the northern side of the Sea of Galilee. If you picture the land, you have the Sea of Galilee, the Jordan River, and you have the Dead Sea down here in the south. Capernaum is right up here on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee. And you see Jesus and his disciples frequently returning to this location as their home base of operations. So Jesus walks into this pretty small town, and here he's approached by a Roman centurion. Now a centurion, in particular a Roman centurion, is the commander of a hundred troops, roughly. Thus the name centurion. So we know there's no Roman legion that's stationed anywhere in Palestine at the time. But we also know that Herod Antipas, who is the ruler over this region in which Capernaum is... Has command over a certain number of soldiers. And so he can put them wherever he wants. And so it becomes obvious to us that there are, that he has stationed some soldiers in this town. Now, these soldiers are Roman, or would not be Roman citizens, but they also wouldn't be Jews. They'd be located from around the, the region, the surrounding areas. And what that means is that the centurion that's approaching Jesus is no doubt a Gentile. And also, the servant that is in his home is no doubt a Gentile. And what that means is that we find ourselves in a very similar situation that we saw ourselves last week, where Jesus is approached by this leper who is unclean. And so here Jesus again is confronted by a Gentile who is unclean according to the law. Now, this time it's not the leper, obviously, it's the Gentile. And this time, the issue is not touching him. The issue is coming into his house. But he's not only unclean. He's a second-class citizen. See, he's a Gentile. Gentiles were considered dogs. They're they're pigs. Certainly not to other Gentiles, but to the Jews. They're second-class citizens. They worshipped other gods. In general, they had no idea who Yahweh was, much less worship Him. And here is this encounter, as Jesus encounters this Gentile, and we'll see in a few chapters later where He encounters yet another Gentile, and He says something very similar there about, them, about their class as citizens. So we have to remember that as Jesus goes through the region of Palestine or Canaan, His ministry is to the Jew first. That he's a Jewish Messiah. And he's coming to redeem first and foremost the Jews. The Jews are the first ones to hear the gospel message. The Jews are the first ones to receive it. And then the intent is that they not only receive it and believe in Jesus as the Messiah, but then turn to the world around them and begin broadcasting this message of the Messiah to the Gentile world around them. And they did. Now remember, don't, don't forget that. Jews get a really bad rap in the New Testament for all rejecting Jesus, but that's not actually what happened. Remember the apostles were Jews. Yeah. Remember the first ones that came to salvation at Peter's preaching at Pentecost were Jews. Yeah. Right? Re- remember that the foundations of the church were built on converted Jews. Right? They didn't all reject. Now, we have a lot of evidence for them rejecting, but they didn't all reject. But the point was that the Gentiles were looked at as second-class citizens by the Jews, and it's really for good reason. They were told from the very beginning, you don't associate with them, you don't intermarry with them, you don't do anything with them, you don't touch them, you you don't do anything with them, lest you take on their gods, lest you become like them. And so the Jews viewed them that way. But what we're seeing already in Matthew's gospel, and what we'll see come to fullness by the end, is this, Jesus is a little bit different as he interacts with the Gentiles he comes in contact with. He's a little bit different than most Jews. Because he actually gives to them a lot of hope. Matthew, from the very beginning, has told us that the Gentiles, were their ears were perked at the birth of this king. Because who did we see come from the east but the Magi. So we already see brimmings of these Gentiles coming into the kingdom of God, but here is this Jewish Messiah coming in and interacting with this Gentile who would be a second-class citizen. And so you understand that not only is the kingdom that he's bringing going to establish the church, but you can also see why it would be very difficult to begin to combine these two classes of people. You have the Jew and the Gentile. Why why that early church has a really difficult time with the ethnic distinctions between the two groups bringing them together. They're, They're at war with each other. They don't even see each other as in the same ballpark, right? So there's issues going on with this scene, this centurion coming up to Jesus. But this centurion is very interesting because we actually know a lot more about this centurion than Matthew lets on here. Matthew tells us almost nothing about the centurion. But we actually know a good deal about, or at least some interesting things about this centurion. We find out in the Gospel of Luke that this centurion actually sent leaders from that community, the Jewish elders from that community, he sent them to Jesus first to kind of go before him. To kind of butter him up, so to speak. He sent these leaders to Jesus to plead his case on his behalf, but I want you to see something happening in, Ma- in Matthew's telling that's that's really interesting. There is one synagogue in the town of Capernaum. There's one. Sy- it's a small town, and there's one synagogue in that town, and the remains of that synagogue are still standing to this day. Okay, that's the first thing. Go ahead and show the picture of it on the screen behind me. You see it up there. I took this picture a few months ago when I was in Israel. I want you to see it. Now, I want you to look here. You see two different colors of stone. You see the foundation stones that are black. See that? The black area down at the bottom. It's kind of shadowy there, but that those bottom foundation stones are black. This is the foundation of that synagogue in Capernaum, and that is a first-century foundation. So when you go to Israel and you go to Capernaum, you can stand on the synagogue in Peter's hometown, the very synagogue he would have walked on, the floor of the synagogue that he would have walked on. Now, on top of that is a, is, uh, it looks like a completed synagogue or, or partially a ruined synagogue from the Roman the uh, Romans a, uh, a couple hundred years later. But the point is that foundation is the original foundation of the original synagogue that was standing there in Jesus' day. And that's pretty neat. But then, if you listen to how Luke describes this event, this very same same story that we're reading, we're looking at it in Luke chapter 7, and it happens in verses 1 to 5. After he had finished all his sayings, in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion, same centurion, had a servant who was sick, and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built our synagogue. So, not only can we see this synagogue today, this very synagogue that is, is being played out in this story in the city of Capernaum, but we also know who was instrumental in building this synagogue. It was this centurion that built this synagogue, and probably he used the hundred guys that he had at his command. That's what they did with, with Roman soldiers. They put them to work building tons of things so that they didn't get bored, because what happens when soldiers get bored? They start blowing stuff up, I guess. I don't know. Um, but, so they, they put him to work building all kinds of things, aqueducts and many other things, right? So they, they put him to work. And so probably he put them to work building this synagogue, and the people in the town are very grateful for that. But Moses, I mean, But Matthew does not include any of those details. Why? I think because he doesn't want us to get distracted with the fact that in this particular town, The two sides, Jew and Gentile, actually got along pretty well. I think instead, he wants us to really just disregard all of that and see the miracle that's really happening here in the scene. Don't get confused with how close this Gentile was to many of the Jews in the town. Instead, look at what's happening when this Gentile comes into Jesus' presence and demonstrates the kind of faith that he demonstrates to Jesus. Look at what he's saying. So he comes into Jesus' presence and he tells him that his servant is suffering. And Jesus responds with what in the ESV is a statement. He says, I will, I will come and heal him, but should probably be a question because of the way it sup- should be worded. It probably shall be, sh- should be, shall I come and heal him? And that makes sense because the, he hasn't actually asked Jesus to do anything yet. He's just told him, look, my servant is sick, and so Jesus is responding to him with something that amounts to, do you want me to come and heal him? Is that what you're asking me for? And which Jesus seems willing to do. Remember last week, he has no qualms about touching the unclean, much less probably going into their house. It doesn't seem like he has any kind of problem with that. But what we find out is that the centurion does not want Jesus to come to his house and heal his servant. He wants Jesus to stay put and heal his servant. That's a tremendous difference. It's a big difference. Because here the centurion comes up to Jesus, already knowing what Jesus is capable of. But think about how big of a miracle this is. The disciples are going to be drowning in a boat in just a few scenes, and they're not going to have any idea that Jesus can calm the storm. They're going to go try to feed the 5,000 and then the 4,000, which is actually probably more like 15,000 and 20,000, and they're not going to have any idea that Jesus is even capable of multiplying the bread for people. These are his disciples who follow along with him. And so the centurion comes up, and there's three interesting things that happen in this scene. For one, he recognizes that Jesus can heal even from a distance, that you don't have to come to my house to heal. You can do it from here. For two, he recognizes that he isn't worthy to have Jesus come into his home. And for three, he recognizes Jesus' authority is the authority of God himself. So consider just for a moment how much insight this Gentile has to have into the person of Jesus to come up and ask what he's asking. See, the centurion is an example of precisely what we see in the first beatitude in Matthew 5, 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit. The unworthiness that he's claiming is not because he knows that he's a Gentile and that he thinks that he will make Jesus unclean if he brings him into his home. Quite the opposite. It's evident that this Gentile knows that nothing can make Jesus unclean. That nothing is going to make him unclean. That Jesus' authority comes from God Himself now, what the centurion is recognizing about Jesus is his supreme worth. That's what he notices about Jesus. He notices his supreme worth and that his worth pales by comparison. He recognizes that this man that they call Jesus is sent by God Himself. That this man carries with him the authority of the maker of the universe. Which is precisely what he says to him in the next verse, does he not? He says, for I too am a man under authority. See, it's worded sort of strange and it's hard to pick up on the first read. But what he's essentially saying is, just as soldiers respond to me, Because of the authority of Herod Antipas and ultimately Caesar that I represent. They respond to me. They go do what I say because I represent Caesar or Herod Antipas. I represent higher authority. And when I say go, they go. They respond to me because of the authority that I represent. So too, sickness responds to you, Jesus, because of the authority of God that you represent. See, it's precisely because of your elevated rank. See, he's talking like a a soldier. He understands things in soldier's terms. You know football coaches? You're around football coaches? They see life in football terms. Right? It's all black and white. It's follow your leader. That's your point person. You need football coaches in your life. They bring a lot of structure and organization. Right? This guy is thinking like a soldier. He looks at Jesus and he goes, look. I recognize, just like I have, the authority of Caesar. And when I say go, my servants go, not because I'm fearful or because I say something. No, no, no. I know they go because of a higher authority that I represent. And so, too, I know that sickness will flee because of the authority that you represent. And it's precisely because of your elevated rank that my home cannot contain you. Jesus, all you have to do is say the word... And the forces of nature bend at your will. Say the word. All you have to do is say the word. You have the power of the Almighty. I'm not worthy to have you under my roof. When we read the Beatitudes, I said to you that we were going to see them play out throughout the Gospel of Matthew. We were going to see both positive examples of what that looks like in the life of a person. And we're going to see negative examples, things that are the exact opposite of of the beatitude that's being described there. Here, this centurion is an example of being poor in spirit, understanding his own unworthiness of having Jesus' attention and healing. Now, in that beatitude, you'll remember what is the reward, the blessing that Jesus promises to those who are poor in spirit. Yours is the kingdom of heaven, right? In this story, he's going to turn to the centurion and to the crowd around him and say almost exactly that about this kind of person. Not only does the centurion get what he's asking for, he gets a servant healed, but Jesus uses him as an example for all the Gentiles that will celebrate at the Lord's table when the kingdom comes in fullness, so Matthew is using the centurion, Jesus is using the centurion here to demonstrate that saving faith is trusting in the authority and power of Jesus Christ. The centurion models what that actually looks like. The second thing I want you to see is that saving faith is the only qualification for entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Saving faith is the only qualification for entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Look at verse 10. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who, who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And the centurion, And to the centurion Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. So Jesus is marveling at the faith of this centurion, and he uses this man to demonstrate a a, a lesson for all the people listening. He uses him as an illustration of who's going to enter the kingdom of heaven. But I want you to notice some significant features about the kingdom of heaven. First, ethnicity has no bearing on acceptance in his kingdom. Ethnicity has no bearing on acceptance in his kingdom. Now this particular point rings true for every single generation throughout the entire history of mankind who has always sought to separate different people groups into society, uh, in society into different classes. And Jesus is pretty clear. There's none of that. He says, Many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. And by this, he means Gentiles. He's not talking about Jews that are scattered from all over the place. He's talking about Gentiles are going to come from east and west that are, that, are, that are out there. And this man's faith... The kind of faith that he has is representative of the kind of faith that's going to be at the table from both Jew and Gentile of people coming together and gathering around the table in the new kingdom. The faith that he is demonstrating is representative of that kind of faith that's going to have eternal consequences. The kind of faith that is going to save eternally. He says they're going to recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So the image of being seated at the table or having a seat at the table is, is really resonates today as well as it did back then. And having a, a seat at the table. If you have a seat at the table, you're brought into the discussion. You're an equal participant. You have equal position in value and worth. And so just consider for a moment what this Jewish Messiah coming into this town that's mostly comprised of Jews, and, and he's, he's demonstrating the faith of this centurion for all those who are listening, probably a lot of Jews hanging around listening to him, say this, talk about the inclusion of this Gentile at the table with the likes of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. So meaning that the kingdom that Jesus is bringing, there is no second-class citizen there are none that are relegated to the footstool all of them regardless of ethnicity or whatever have social class have have an have an equal standing at the table all who are citizens of his kingdom no matter their ethnicity will have a seat at the table but but why precisely because this centurion recognizes that jesus represents the authority of god the almighty that's it That's the crux. That's the center of it. It's precisely this kind of faith that brings one into the family of God. And this kind of faith neutralizes all class distinction, all racial distinction. It's all neutralized in the kingdom of heaven. So the ethnicities and languages that are present at the table are all there, but the classes are neutralized. Don't we see this in Revelation 7? We see a glimpse into the kingdom of God, and we see people of every nation and language and tribe and tongue. And the interesting thing to see there is they're all represented. The languages are all there. The ethnicities are all there. The people are all there. What's different is they're all standing in the same place. They all have equal position and authority. They all have equal class. They all get a seat at Christ's table. Now, the other thing that I want you to see is that conversely, the ethnicity of the Jews has no bearing on their acceptance in the kingdom. Amen. They don't get priority simply because they're descended, they're physical descendants of Abraham. So Matthew's Gospel, you remember, it seems like it's mostly targeted towards a Jewish audience. The reason we know this is because there's a lot of Jewish things in it. So it's probably that the target audience, unlike Luke's gospel, the, the target audience, probably the primary audience, was somewhere in Jerusalem or probably in that, in that area where it would be read by mostly Jews and they'd pick up on a lot of this, these kinds of things that Matthew is laying down for the Jews. But remember that, that this is a, a really a big problem, even as early on as chapter 3 in the Gospel of Matthew. Remember, John the Baptist is in the river, and he's baptizing people. And he sees some Pharisees and Sadducees standing up on the seashore. And what does he say to them? He says, don't presume to say to yourself that we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. So it's communicating precisely the opposite to the Jews. Don't assume that by your connection to Abraham, genealogically, that you're automatically included at the table. Many of you are going to be cast out into the realm of outer darkness. He says the Jews, um, the sons of the kingdom, will be cast out, meaning these, these sons of Abraham, these people that felt like that the kingdom was theirs simply because of their lineage. Not so, says Jesus. Your status as simply a physical descendant of Abraham does not equal automatic inclusion into the kingdom of God. Instead of the eating at the table, which is the full inclusion of Gentile and Jew together at the table, they're thrown into the area of outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Get the image that's being presented here. Here in the house, in the kingdom of God, are the bright lights of the party that's going on as Jesus gives the bread and the wine from the, from the, from the new kingdom and, and where are those that considered themselves always to be a part of it simply because of their lineage. They're thrown into the area of outer darkness. And Jesus uses the word hell six or seven times in this gospel. He doesn't use it here, but he describes exactly what he, the same way he describes hell. Where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. Where you're looking on at the lights of the party, where there's Jew and Gentile at the table, all because of what? What's the reason that they're at the table? Why are they there? Why are they seated at the table? The determining factor is trusting completely in the authority of Christ. That's what it is, that's what gains them a seat at the table. So Jesus looks at this man and he says, Here is a man who is truly poor in spirit. Here is a man who believes fully in my complete authority as one who, who really is acting on behalf of God the Almighty. And the ones who are going to populate my kingdom believe like this man. Never have I found such faith in all of Israel. Yeah. But now what does that mean for us? We use that phrase quite frequently, that to to gain acceptance into God's kingdom, you must trust in Christ's authority. We use that phrase, but what does it mean? How, how How do I know if I'm trusting Christ's authority or not? Well, there's a lot of things we could say about that, but let's boil it down to a couple of things let's start at the beginning start at a foundation let's build a foundation for that and let's work our way up first what's God's goal out of all this we know what his goal is and we've all agreed to what his goal is we meet here as a church his goal is to glorify himself through you right his goal is to glorify himself through you That he aims to extract the praises of his people out of their mouths. But he will get glory and praise out of all people. Paul tells us that in the end, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that that Jesus is Lord to the glory of the Father. Everybody in the end is going to praise him. But that's, that's, that's his goal, is to glorify himself through us and through our lives. If that's true, then at the very base of all of this, to submit to his authority means that we forfeit the perceived right... For self-gratification and personal autonomy. We forfeit the perceived right to self-gratification and personal autonomy. At the base, what that means is we fight sin daily. It has to mean that. As just a basic principle. It means that we have to get up daily and fight sin. So it's like joining a new family. You lose some things. For to join God's family is to lose the old life, the old man. We walk away from that. What would it be like if you walked into your new family that you were joining and you insisted on all your old traditions? No, no, no. I insist on my dressing. I insist on my turkey, the way it's supposed to be carved. I insist on all of the way, thi- the way I used to do things, not taking anything on the new family. You need to convert to my way of thinking. No, it's the same way when we hold on to those deeds of the flesh that are in the past, those things that are, that are dead, those things that do not leave, lead to life. When we cling to those, we're insisting on our own self-gratification, things that please our own flesh. But not only do we have to turn away from sin, we have to fight daily for obedience. Jesus didn't just say, don't do these things, and then took off. No, oh. he said there's a whole new host of things that you do. Just as much as you turn away from lying and corruption and lust and, and all kinds of things like this, you also turn toward loving your neighbor as yourself, forgiveness of people around you, radical kinds of forgiveness. There's all kinds of new things that you pick up and do, so we, we vie for obedience. That's, that's at the very foundation. We can't, it's a non-starter. We can't get anywhere unless we agree on those things. That if he's going to get glory, if it means to submit to Christ's authority and come under his kingdom, then he's getting the praise from me. That means I've got to throw away sin and I've got to strive towards obedience. But it means a whole lot of other things. We also know that his goal is to conform me into the image of Christ. Amen. That's his goal. His goal is to conform me to the image of Christ. Romans 8 tells us that. So if his goal is to conform me into the image of Christ and I am submitting to his authority... In my life, to conform me into his image, then that means that I forfeit the right to determine my own future or complain about my present. I forfeit the right to determine what is my future, to set my plans in place that, that God must bring me to. He's called me to this. I know he has. Look at all the things that he's done in my life. He's done all these good, all these things, and it's all leading to this conclusion right here. So this is my destiny. I I have to be there. But he didn't. And I have a real grievance with God because I should be there. That's where I should be. No, 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 no. If you've come under his authority, you've forfeited the right to both determine your own future and complain about your present. He's the one that gets full authority to determine those things. And what that means is that wherever you are currently is precisely where he wants you, because what is his goal? To conform you into into the image of Christ so that he can extract praises from his people. So precisely where you're at is exactly where God wants you so that he can conform you into the image of his son, because that is the goal. So I forfeit the right to complain about where I am. Because what happens when I say, look, the Lord is blessing me. Look at what all the things that he's done. And this must be the end conclusion. And then I get cancer at 30. What happens? Did God not see that coming? Did he go, man, I really wanted you to be the next Supreme Court justice, but didn't see that one coming. Well, now i got to go to plan B. Of course not. don't think that about god if his goal is to conform me into his image i I lose the right to complain about those things but we know the sinful flesh is going to draw us towards it. it means poverty or prosperity both of which are trials both of which can be blessings both of which are listed exactly as those those things in scripture that means the dreams that I have that are fulfilled are the Lord's blessing, but the dreams that I have that are shattered are also His blessing. Because He's using those things as well. Now, if you have found acceptance in Christ, then here, here's what that also means. To submit to His authority. means that I have to surrender all other forms of validation. I have to surrender all other forms of validation. In other words, what other people think of me is not nearly as important as what Christ has said I am. If I am really coming under his authority, then his opinion is the only one that matters. Now, if somebody says you're a jerk, you might be a jerk. It might be that that's their opinion, but it's also Jesus' opinion too. Right? So it doesn't just mean you can ignore everybody either. But it means that Christ's opinion is the thing that matters. So that means that to have a seat at Christ's table is of more value, of infinitely more value than any other treasures that I can gain here on earth. But what about financial validation? Do you find some sense of security in having more money? That, hey, look, this means that I'm making my way up in the world. This means that I'm kind, of a, I'm kind of a big deal. I mean, I can throw my weight around. Social validation, what other people think about you, The prestige that you have in the city, your reputation. Does that validate you? Are you concerned about those things? Even something as little as Facebook and Twitter. We all like the little when people hit the heart, right? People hit the thumbs up. That's some kind of validation for us. Are we finding our validation in those things? about career validation? As I move up in the company, hey, look, I'm, I'm progressing. People think really well of me. Is that some kind of validation that you need? We seek all kinds of validation from our spouses. Hey, married people, from our spouses. Where we think, hey, I really need them to affirm something in me. When I do something good, I really want them to appreciate it. I need to have my ego stroked. I'm preaching in the mirror here, okay? <laughs> if anybody else is like that, then good. But, right? That's what we want. We want all kinds of forms of other validation. But but if we want a seat at Christ's table, if we're coming under His authority, it means we give up those things. His opinion is the only one that matters. A seat at Christ's table, then, is... Of more value than the affirmation of others do we have fear of man is it really hard to speak truth to people that are maybe more powerful than we are do we crumple under that kind of pressure when the culture is swimming against us can we stand in its streams with a spine of steel and preach the gospel I think this even goes all the way down to body image. Concerned about what other people think about us, how we're perceived, or even how we see us in the mirror. How does Christ see you? Does he value your body? So much so that he'll pull it up from the grave one day. Really, all of this is asking the same question. Is Christ enough? Is having a seat at Christ's table enough? If you had nothing else, if everything was taken away from you, if your health was taken away from you, if your spouse was taken away from you, if your career ambition was taken away from you, if everything was taken away from you, you had nothing left. Is Christ enough? Is having a seat at his table enough? Is it enough to be a part of the family of the king? Or do we want all our stuff too? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you've included us we're so undeserving i am so undeserving i see daily how undeserving i am yet there in the midst of your kingdom our chairs For everyone that wants one. How gracious. When we deserve to be cast into outer darkness. Yet Lord, precisely because of your authority. We're included at the table. Lord, you are infinitely gracious and merciful. And we see that in Christ. We also see that in the inclusion of so many people coming together in one room singing praises to your name, none of which belong at your table. All of which you have made belong. How incredible. We thank you for what a gracious and merciful sacrifice that was. how wonderful you are as our God and Savior. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.